This is going to be a Cook's tour of the Olympics, but also of Oxford. And I pick the idea of a, a Cook's tour because uh, in English, English idiom, a Cook's tour means a whirlwind introduction, just sampling different places. And if you are interested in them, you go back later. In Australian English idiom, I'm told, it means more of uh, a series of diversions on a journey, digressions. But in, in either sense, whether it's uh, English or Australian, this is a Cook's tour. It's a few stopping off points in 100 years or more of the modern Olympics. It's also a Cook's tour because Andrew and others involved in university sport here want to capture the range of Oxford's contributions to the Olympics. Uh, Sir Theodore Cook is somebody you might have heard of, might not have heard of from the first London Games. Stephanie Cook from the first Games of the New Millennium. So that's why we're calling it a Cook's Tour. And when we came in, you may have heard some music. And I was tempted to ask people at this stage in the lecture if you could identify this music we're hearing again. I'm not going to ask that, though, because I know what Oxford audiences are like. Peter Sager, in his uh, book, A German View on Oxford and Cambridge, says uh, that uh, Colin, Moore, uh, Colin Dexter, the writer of Morse, said to him that Colin Dexter was in the Hollywood Music Rooms once with a very small group of people uh, about the size of this. And uh, it was an obscure Zvorak uh, 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 Requiem that was going to be played, and the organist was late. And then the organist just didn't turn up. So the conductor said, does anybody out here by any chance know how to play this Requiem? And 13 hands went up. <laughs> So if I ask you to name that, I suspect somebody will tell us and spoil the surprise. But uh, I'll give you a clue. It's not by anybody called Cook, but it is by somebody who has a connection to the Olympics. And that's what I want to do today. I want to introduce you on this tour of Oxford and the Olympics to the idea that Olympians, like Oxford alumni more generally, will have a hinterland, will have different aspects to their character. And the sport is important, but understanding the Olympic ideals is even more important in our application for life. And therefore, what I'm really doing in, in what I'll describe as a kind of preamble or prelude to uh, the main talk is to explore with you notions of what a university is all about, because after all, that should be part of an alumni weekend. And uh, there are various ways of putting this, but in my own uh, inaugural lecture, it's mentioned that I was at Queen's University Belfast as a professor of jurisprudence. The way I put it was to draw on something the former dean of Yale Law School had written about, uh, an article on property law, and he subtitled it, One View of the Cathedral. Now, the reference there is to Monet's studies of the cathedral at Rouen. And Monet, as you probably know, 19 studies of the cathedral. Each one looks different because he painted uh, at a different time of the day or night. So light and shade makes a difference, different time of the year. 
I took that a little bit further and said, if you could imagine, unlike Monet, going to different vantage points, then every time you paint a picture of the cathedral or a picture of law or hear a picture of Oxford or the Olympics, you are telling us something about the object, but you're also saying something about yourself, your own vantage point. And indeed, Monet said he wasn't really painting the cathedral. He was trying to capture the atmosphere between him and the cathedral. Now, I think that it wouldn't be quite the same uh, if you painted any old object. So I think if you take two great institutions, Oxford and the Olympics, and you try and paint a picture, then you will get something of the atmosphere of university life and of sport, and you will find out something about yourself. So in that sense, this Cook's tour, this introduction, is trying to get us into the mindset in which to enjoy the next year, uh, a year of cultural excitement as well as sporting excitement in the run-up to London 2012. Before we start exploring the Olympics, I'd like, therefore, to say something about Oxford, about the university, about why it's special. And just to give a few examples of why people think it's a great university, and not only in academic terms. So Arthur Culler Couch, uh, Cornish-born, Cambridge and Oxford professor, said, just look at the architecture. Of their own incentive, the old heads of house sought out and employed the best reputed architects of their times, Inigo Jones, and that miracle of a youth, Christopher Wren. Or you could take the music. Sega says Oxford is a city of music. When you arrive, the first thing you hear above the noise of the traffic is the bells. And it applies to other universities as well sometimes, something of the aspect of Oxford that you will know well, the collegiate structure, is described in the history of Cambridge, uh, the 800 years of Cambridge by Professor Strathern. She says that the genius of scale explains the wonders of Oxbridge, the idea of having a number of different colleges on a human scale where people can know one another and know people from the past and take an interest in people in the future again, part of the alumni weekend. She says, a college is a company of people from all subjects that the university encompasses, an exhilarating amalgam of enthusiasms and interests. Take any rowing eight or cricket side, she says, or choir, drama society, or dinner table, and any discipline could be there. What is so valuable about that form of collegiality is not just the lateral thinking that it engenders, but the knowledge it brings of others' work practices, pressures, preoccupations, and of what other parts of the university are like. And in a book by Rose and Zimmern, looking at Oxbridge, but they prefer to call it Camford, for some obscure reason, they said it's mystical what makes Oxbridge or Camford great. The gifts of these universities are impalpable and indefinable. Some alumni talk of their time in college as an experience that has transfigured their lives. This is a mysterious term well suited to describe 
a mysterious process. Bringing us down to earth, I like, as a description of universities, Bruce Truscott, pseudonym of Professor Pierce, writing in the 1940s, who says there are two types of universities. And you can tell all you need to know about a university from its matriculation promise or oath. He says, in the Scottish universities, all undergraduates on matriculation make a solemn promise. It is interesting to compare the form of the declaration made at Edinburgh with that used at Glasgow. Edinburgh inclines the sentimental. And I quote, I will be dutiful and industrious in my studies and will pay my debt of gratitude and goodwill on every occasion to the best of my powers so long as I live. Contrast the Glasgow formula, which is commendably and rigidly practical. And I quote, I will not willfully damage the fabric or furnishings <laughs> of the university and will make good to the satisfaction of the Senate any damage caused by me. <laughs> the Oxford approach to university life is best explained by blessed John Henry Newman, lecturing 150 years ago in Dublin, who said, you need to distinguish a university from a research institute on the one hand and a correspondence course or exam factory on the other. It is not only not a research institute and not a correspondence course, or in the modern incarnation, it's not a distance learning virtual community. He says, it's also not a convent and not a seminary. Above all, the wisdom of his lectures is distilled in one beautiful sentence when Newman insists that a university is an alma mater, knowing her children one by one, not a foundry or a mint or a treadmill. So in the bulk of this lecture, I want to look one by one at just a few of the Oxford Olympians in order to illuminate these ideas about what a university is for. The last time Aquango said anything interesting about universities was when Los Angeles were the host city of the Olympics. And I don't mean in 1984, but in 1932. The University Grant Committee's report said this, an education for life may be achieved in many different ways, but it is certainly not achieved solely in the lecture room, the laboratory, or the library. The most subtle and potent educational influences in the older universities have been those which, being indirect, come not with observation, and originally were probably unforeseen and unintended. The excitement of being plunged into a new environment and a more spacious mode of life. The sense of privilege in being made heirs to a great tradition, citizens of no mean city. Above all, the informal discussions of a few friends about all things in heaven and earth, up to all hours of the night or morning, where the argument is followed whithersoever it leads. The clash of mind between the youthful historian, medical student, chemist, theologian, and engineer. Members often of different social classes and bringing into the pool different experiences and different prejudices. These are the influences which stimulate thought, develop the faculty of judgment, 
and arouse in students that energy of the soul which Aristotle found to be the true essence of well-being. To evoke in its students such an energy of the soul in pursuit of excellence must be a principal aim of any university. Now, the Oxford website finds that energy of the soul in all kinds of achievements by illustrious alumni. Nobel Prize winners and prime ministers feature way ahead of Olympians on the Oxford website. Even kings trump Olympians. And of course, there's at least one king, King Olav of Norway, who won Olympic gold for sailing and deserves mention twice. Also, the Oxford website doesn't count Nobel laureates who only came to Oxford after winning their prizes. It's quite a hoity approach. <laughs> Although in sport, Norm Tabor and David Hemery came to Oxford after winning their most famous medals. Still, the point is that in our Cook's tour, we're going to look at alumni one by one and try, through a few vantage points, to look at the Olympic movement in modern times in three parts or three movements. The revival of the Games in 1896 through to the last Games before the Second World War in 1936, so those first 40 years. Then secondly, the second London Games in 1948 through to Beijing, that next 60 years. And then I want to look at 2012 simply by looking back 100 years. And we'll come back to that music, its composer, and context. So, we begin with the Athens Games in 1896. And uh, you know the story of the founder uh, of the modern Olympics, Baron Coubertin, being influenced by Much Wenlock and by English public schools. They were, of course, inspired by Oxford, among other sources. And so it's not surprising that when the Olympic Games were revived in 1896 in Athens, one of the organizers was the Greek patriot and nationalist Constantine Manu of Balliol, who invited his friend, John Pius, sometimes known as Jack Boland, to watch. Meanwhile, a classicist from Magdalen decided to go to Athens and play. Judith Curthoys, the Christchurch archivist, tells the story of Boland in 1896 beautifully. And I'm sure we're going to see more of this from different colleges. The picture you can see is Boland in the 1896 tennis final. He came just to watch. On April the 6th, 1896, over breakfast, a Greek asked him to bolster the numbers in tennis, and then a German did. As one does, Boland agreed to have a go, to enter both the singles and the doubles. And in the doubles, he found a third person, a German, with whom he was paired. Boland hadn't come prepared to play, so he played in his ordinary shoes, but he found a tennis racket in the Panhellenic Bazaar. In true boy's own style, Boland came out on top, winning the singles title against the German who had invited him to play, <laughs> and winning the doubles 
And so on the 11th of April, you'll appreciate the Greek and British calendars uh, diverging somewhat at this stage. Uh, but in April 1896, Boland becomes Oxford, Britain, and Ireland's first Olympic champion by accident. Perhaps a more important question from our purposes than, than who wins is what happened next to the characters, whether they win or lose. The organiser of the games, Constantine Manu, went off immediately to fight in Crete and soon was killed in battle. Boland became an Irish nationalist MP at Westminster and for many years was the director of the Catholic Truth Society. Robertson became a barrister, King's Counsel, and the author of many books on the law. Indeed, of those Oxonians who competed in the 1896 Olympics in Athens, and possibly in any subsequent Olympics, one of the preeminent claims to scholarship must lie with this character, George S. Robertson. He became Sir George, his books on the law include books on copyright and on the crown. But he was also the author of works in his original subject of classics. For example, he wrote a book called On Greek Reading. George Robertson was a fellow of New College. He was the Eldon Law Scholar. And as an undergraduate, he had won university prizes. The Gaysford Prize for Greek Verse in 1894 and the Gaysford Essay Prize for Greek Prose in 1895. Were these scholarly achievements the perfect preparation for Athens 1896? Well, yes and no, or more precisely, no and yes. On the sporting front, he didn't do too well. Robertson had rowed for his college and was awarded his blue for throwing the hammer. But... When he saw in the Thomas Cook window an advert to go to the 1896 Games, he didn't realise that hammer throwing wasn't going to be in the Olympics. <laughs> so he arrived and decided to have a go anyway at something else, and he picked the shot and the discus and tennis. Now, it doesn't seem, despite winning all those university prizes in Greek, to have grasped that the Greeks were quite good at the discus. And he's widely reported to have thrown the shortest distance in the history of the Olympics. <laughs> Nor was he successful on the tennis court. You've already heard that Boland won. This is where I have to distance myself slightly from Andrew Thomas, Kelly Weaver, and the other greats behind the Oxford Thinking, the Oxford Sport website, in their otherwise wonderful list of medalists, which you can see online, and so we're not going to have a kind of PowerPoint display of anything. Uh, they put them by year, and then they take some of the participants and put them in bronze, silver, or gold category. So if you look at the website now, Robertson looks as if he won the bronze in tennis, in the doubles. I think this is stretching it somewhat, apart from the fact that they didn't award medals. 
What happened was he and his partner got a buy in the first round and then lost the semi-final. <laughs> and that has been reinterpreted by Oxford as winning the bronze medal. Still, Robertson had come to Athens because he'd seen that Cooks would get him there, and he went really because his subject was Greek. So all was not lost. He composed the Greek ode, which he recited in the presence of Greek royalty at the closing ceremony of the Games. By all accounts, they couldn't understand his accent. So I'm going to read a little of it in English. Up my song, an alien crowd we come to this Athenian home, yet not like Persian plunderers of old, but in frank love and generous friendship bold. I too, who sing hereof, I too, in strenuous sport, with sons of Hellas strove. O mother Athens, ever from old time, the homeless wanderer found a home with thee. Athens all hail, hail, O rejoicing throng, and from our lips receive the tributary song. I've omitted quite a bit, but it's pretty much along those lines. Whatever you think of Oxford's Olympic poetry, and there is more to come, Robertson's university prizes do seem to have been a good foundation for his most memorable contributions to the history of the Olympic Games. He became a member of the British Olympic Committee. He was unrestrained in his criticism of the American team's dissatisfaction with de decisions in the London 1908 Olympics. And he went on to have a very successful career at the bar. In later life, he gave up the odes and wrote more prosaically a book called The Law of Trams and Light Railways in Great Britain. The London 1908 Games were organized principally by three Oxford people. Theodore Andrea Cook, the Reverend Robert de Courcy Lafan, and above all, William Grenfell, who became Baron Desborough. But of those, I'd just like to take one example, Theodore Andrea Cook. You can see here the official report of the 1908 Olympics. And it's written by Theodore Cook. He rode in uh, the boat race in the late 1880s, and he loved fencing. He fenced for England, and he was the non-playing captain of the fencing team that went in 1906 to what are often called the intercalated or intermediate games in Athens. The idea that some people had was that every other four years, in other words, two years after uh, major Olympics, there would be a kind of intermediate Olympics back in Athens. So you go around the world, but you keep coming back to Athens. In 1906, uh, Grenfell, Desborough, uh, fenced for England, and Cook captained them. But Cook's silver medal in the Olympics, and this is a genuine medal, was in Antwerp, 1920, and it was for literature in what we might nowadays call the Cultural Olympiad. Now, much of this isn't obvious if you look at the standard books on Oxford and sport. For instance, on the boat race book, he's listed in the crew, but he's not otherwise mentioned. 
He himself, however, wrote many books on a wide range of subjects. Cook wrote, or co-wrote, books about France, about curves, spirals, horse racing, the Henley Regattas, winter sports, football, as well as this magisterial history of the 1908 Olympics. Cook uh, was a Wadham undergraduate. He was strongly opposed to Germany in the approach to the war, during the war, and pretty much after the war. He was the editor of the field, and his gung-ho editorials contributed to the award of his knighthood. Having resigned from the International Olympic Committee because it was not sufficiently opposed to Germany in the First World War, and then being frustrated by the public failing to fund Olympic efforts to revive the Games after the war, he seems to have been against Britain participating anymore, and especially in the 1920 Games. So it's a little bit odd that he nonetheless entered the art competition. And the ode could be seen as a little bitter. It's a short poem, and I'll only quote a, a few lines. Antwerp, 1920. Sheeted in silence, black as a lonely tarn, among the hills lay Antwerp's lonely stadium beneath an empty sky. In whose honour do you now assemble? What dead do you celebrate in funeral games? Upon that word she ceased. The dead men in the trenches answer, we are the dead. Now, Cook did many things. He edited an anthology of humorous verse, for instance, which has absolutely no funny lines in it. <laughs> Otherwise, I would uh, read one to you. But the most interesting thing about him is that he was an amateur enthusiast. So he justifies, at least in my mind, professors of jurisprudence and others pontificating on sport and Oxford. He was very enthusiastic about amateurs looking at the arts and the sciences together about seeking to understand the world around them, of looking when they go, particularly he liked to go to France in the long vacations, even as an undergraduate at Wadham, looking at the great cities and towns on the continent and trying to understand what they were about. In particular, if you look at how he became interested in spirals, it was from going to an Oxford dinner that he got his big breakthrough. He was still a classics undergraduate. In the long vacation, he'd been to France. He'd been to Blois, and he'd seen this beautiful spiral staircase. He came back and uh, was invited onto high table on a night when there were visiting biologists of great distinction. And he said that he couldn't follow the conversation that much, but he was asked what his passion was, and he started talking about his vacation in Blois, talked about spirals, and the biologist next to him said, draw me what it looks like. So he did, and then the visitor said, I've got that shape, 
in my room, in my suitcase. Would you like me to go and get it? So he went off, came back with a shell, which didn't at first look to cook anything like the spiral staircase at Blois. But then the guy dramatically used the knife to cut the shell in two, opened it up, and that was what the staircase looked like. And Cook had a kind of epiphany as an undergraduate. He realized that it probably wasn't the shell, nature, copying the staircase. It was whoever designed the staircase must have understood something about the beauty and mathematics of nature. And so he said, he knew that whoever had designed the staircase must be somebody who lived in or near Blois and who understood beauty, mathematics, art, science and nature. And Leonardo da Vinci was the person in retirement living in Blois that Cook became convinced had designed that staircase and he wrote books about it and it became a lifelong passion alongside the Olympics. So, the point here is that right at the beginning of the modern Olympic Games, and particularly the kind of people involved in the 1908 Olympics in London, we have some astonishing rounded characters. I can't, obviously, mention all of those involved. But even among those who didn't do much better than Robertson on track or field, some have stories well worth telling on another occasion. For example, the Shavas twins, you probably know about. Noel and Christopher, they ran in the heats of the 400 metres in London 1908. They didn't make it through, but uh, they went on in the war and otherwise to uh, really make their mark on the world. One was a conscientious objector, but he joined the medical corps and uh, on the field of battle was awarded the Victoria Cross and Bar, in other words, two Victoria Crosses, and died on the battlefield. The other became a bishop like their father. Their father was uh, the Bishop of Liverpool. Uh, they had other brothers. Bernard Chavas, for instance, was at Baylor around the same time uh, and beat uh, Ronnie Poulton, great England rugby player, uh, in uh, the sprints at, uh, uh, amongst Oxford freshmen. With their father, the surviving twin, Bishop Chavas, helped create St. Peter's as a full college of the university. Apart from athletics, they played lacrosse for Oxford. Bishop Chavas was the bishop, a little bit before my time, of Rochester, where I'm from. He uh, later had to have a leg amputated, a number of stories about him. But uh, one element of his 1908 Olympics I've always known about because they are the prize item in the museum in Rochester. This shows you what a limited childhood I had. If you go into the Guildhall in Rochester, the best item in it, never mind Dickens and all that, also got some interest in uh, that part of Kent, it's Chavas's shorts that he wore in the 1908 400 meter heat because of course they were his Oxford shorts white with a dark blue trim 
I can't pass by London 1908 without mentioning uh, rugby. It was said to be Kubatan's favorite sport. And when he was talking to those public school people about sport in this country in the 19th century, he was very interested in team games, although we sometimes tend to associate the Olympics more with individual excellence. But anyway, he refereed rugby at a high level, uh, and it's sometimes claimed that uh, Alan Chester Valentine, an American rugby blue, is the only Oxonian to win a rugby gold. That's in Paris, 1924. But uh, depending on what you count, and whether you take the Nobel Prize approach of the Oxford website or not, uh, Dan Carroll won rugby gold for two different teams before he came to Oxford on either side of the war. For Australasia in London, 1908, and for America in Antwerp, 1920. So, the 1908 games had rugby, they had athletics, they had all sorts of things. We'll come back to rowing later on. And I want to go from there to the most extraordinary performance before the First World War, in my judgment, in Stockholm, 1912, where Arnold Jackson, later known as Strode Jackson, took those Oxford shorts across the finishing line first in an Olympic final, winning the 1500 meters gold. And that is a great picture of Jackson's victory and of the shorts. And although the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography is not always great on the sporting attributes of Oxford people who've gone on to distinction in other spheres, it's excellent on Jackson or Strode Jackson. And it, and it points out, by the way, his name originally was Arnold Nugent Strode Jackson. And he put a hyphen between the Strode and the Jackson, but kept the original Strode. So he's really, according to them, Arnold Nugent Strode Strode Jackson. <laughs> but anyway, I think this is a good example where you get the flavor of the man simply from uh, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography entry. And I'll quote it then. He was educated at Malvern and Brasenose, where he took up running seriously 1910 to 1914, on the advice of his uncle, Clement Jackson, who was treasurer of the University Athletics Club. Even by the casual standards of the time, Jackson's training was less than arduous and consisted mainly of massage, golf, and walking. <laughs> but he soon proved himself to be one of the world's finest middle-distance runners. He won the mile against Cambridge in 1912 uh, and went to Stockholm. He was an absolute novice in the 1500 meters. He had never before run on a 400 meter or 440 yards track or in anti-clockwise direction. Because as you know, races at Oxford in those days were run in a clockwise direction on a track of three laps to the mile. Thanks to some unselfish and unrehearsed pacemaking by Philip Baker, later Lord Noel Baker, Jackson entered the home straight of the Olympic final in fourth place. But as you can see, his long raking stride took him to the tape first. In three minutes, 56.8 seconds, a new Olympic and British record. Among those he, he beat were the American holders of the world record at 1,500 meters and one mile, who went on to be another Oxford success. 
after again winning the Mile against Cambridge in 1913 and 1914 and anchoring the team to the relay win in the 1914 Penn Relays, he retired, having run no more than half a dozen first-class races. In the war, First World War, he served on the Western Front with the King's Royal Rifle Corps and achieved distinctions which more than matched his sporting honours. He became the youngest Brigadier General in the British Army, was wounded three times, mentioned in the dispatches six times, and was one of only seven officers to be awarded a third bar to a DSO, and so on and so forth. He moved to America and was a colonel uh, on the staff of the Governor of Kentucky during the Second World War, in charge of anti-sabotage precautions, also in New York and then Ottawa. He came back to Oxford in his final years and died here in 1972. These are the kinds of people that we're invited to think about as Oxford Olympians, and their achievements are great both in their chosen sport and in later life. Racing through the rest of uh, the Olympics between now the wars, in Antwerp 1920, the one person I'd single out would be Eddie Egan, there have been 7,000 Rhodes Scholars at Oxford. This one, Eddie Egan of New College, has the distinction of becoming the first person in history to win Olympic gold medals in both the Summer and Winter Games. He won gold in boxing in Antwerp 1920. Then in Lake Placid in 1932, he had a go at the four-man bobsleigh. In between times, by the way, he'd been... Uh, a lawyer, he studied at three universities other than Oxford, Denver, Yale and Harvard. He served in both world wars and he was the chair of boxing's New York State Athletic Commission. He toured the world on his own Cook's tour as an amateur boxer with an old Oxford friend, Douglas Douglas Hamilton. He was a late substitute for the 1932 Olympics. He'd never been in a bobsleigh before and he never competed in the sport afterwards but in his one time, won gold. 1924, Paris. Arthur, later Lord Porritt of New Zealand, another Rhodes Scholar, this time at Magdalen, distinguished surgeon, doctor to the Queen and to her father, the first New Zealander to be Governor General there, president of the Oxford University Athletics Club, Olympic medal winner, taking bronze to Harold Abraham's gold in the famous Paris 1924 100 metres immortalised in the Oscar-winning film Chariots of Fire, to which he was an advisor and which relocated him and others to Cambridge. The independent obituary gives a flavour of the person. Apart from all that, he was Olympic captain of New Zealand at the Amsterdam Games 1928, manager at the Berlin Games in 1936, many years on the International Olympic Committee and the British Olympic Council. He played for St Mary's uh, Hospital uh, interwar rugby side during some of their best seasons. Uh, and the independent obituary says, he carried the athlete's directness and simplicity into his surgical work. With prophetic foresight and considerable professional courage, he went against the mainstream of surgical opinion in his treatment of two of the commonest conditions, hernia and breast cancer. He was also an army surgeon of renown, serving in North Africa and Europe, president of the Royal College of Surgeons, and then returned home 
as the first New Zealand-born Governor-General of his own country. And finally, in this first period, in the run-up to the Second World War, I want, from Berlin 1936 games, just to mention, again, one Oxford athlete, Jack Lovelock, also a New Zealander, Rhodes Scholar, who became president of the Oxford University Athletics Club. This was New Zealand's first Olympic gold medal in the 1500 metres. One of the most moving illustrations of an important feature of Oxford Olympic athletes in particular and sportsmen and women more generally is that there seems to develop a lovely bond with Cambridge people, particularly in athletics through the Achilles Club. And it gives an interest beyond narrow nationalism so that you could be a Cambridge British person and you could have been cheering for Jack Lovelock in the 1936 Berlin final running for New Zealand. In fact, one of the most well-known athletes of all time was in exactly that position. Harold Abrahams, already mentioned, Cambridge man, gold win medal winner, greatly involved in the administration of sport. He was the commentator in uh, 1936 Berlin Games. There's a wonderful book about that by Guy Walters. And uh, Harold Abrahams lost a little bit of that BBC impartiality as Lovelock headed towards uh, the finishing line. And I'll just read you, I won't try and do an impression of Abrahams, but just to get the scene, Abrahams had, had as, as a famous uh, athletic person of Jewish background, he had said that he didn't think we should boycott the games. Uh, as a British commentator, Cambridge man, he was cheering while doing the commentary for Jack Lovelock of Oxford in New Zealand. As, as Lovelock comes round the bend. Lovelock leads by about four yards. Cunningham fighting hard. Bacali coming up on his shoulder. Lovelock leads. Lovelock. Lovelock. Cunningham second. Bacali third. Come on, Jack. <laughs> 100 yards to go. Come on, Jack. By God, he's done it. Jack, come on. Lovelock wins. Five yards, six yards. He wins. He's won. Hooray. <laughs> And if you do read this, then just read on a few lines for Lovelock's more sedate note of the same day. He was a meticulous writer of a diary, and he said, It was undoubtedly the most beautifully executed race of my career, a true climax to eight years' steady work, an artistic creation. Later, felt a little weary, but V-fit. <laughs> and I want from this first movement, if you like, of the first 40 years of the revived games to just hold that idea that of a sporting moment and of a life you can make an artistic creation, an idea that would appeal to Sir Theodore Cook. So turning to the second movement, as I see it, from 1948 onwards, I want to begin from the 1948 games by just mentioning that Oxford athletes, including uh, the greatest, were prepared to help their sport in a number of ways, not only after competing, Harold Abrahams and others as officials, but even as a student, uh, as serving president of the Oxford University Athletics Club in other ways, serving the country in the 1948 games, uh, Sir Roger Bannister, 
helping Colonel Hunter, organizing the games, and other people being involved, including Sandy Duncan, best known as an administrator of the Olympic movement. And here, if we just turn to the Times obituary, just to get a flavor of this person, Sandy Duncan uh, was not selected, or not able to be selected, for those 1936 games because of a hamstring injury. So he was invited to go to the games and support the headquarters staff in Berlin. And that began, in a way, his relationship with the Olympic movement. He was uh, the head of mission for Great Britain Olympics teams at 12 winter and summer games. General Secretary of the British Olympic Association from 1949 to 1975. His administrative career began in 1947 as Secretary of what we now call Bucks, the University Athletics Union. And the Times obituary says, this gave him the initial experience for his appointment two years later at the British Olympic Association. The following 26 years were difficult, which could be said today of working for the British Olympic Association and others in these important roles. He was uh, the recipient of the highest Olympic awards from the International Olympic Committee. I'm not going to tell the stories that are well known of uh, Roger Bannister, Colonel Hunter, and others in organizing the Games, or of, for instance, Oxford people such as uh, the Burnell father and son double act. The BBC is going to cover that in a program about the younger one and his partner in their 1948 gold. But I do want to say that the remarkable lives of 1948 Olympians are not always remembered in detail. And I'll give you an example. An American amateur historian of the Olympics uh, tells the story of another father and son double gold. Paul Smart is an Oxford student. His obituary, according to Jackson Cool, is a laundry list of accolades. A graduate of Harvard, Harvard Law in Oxford, he won in the First World War the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, and a Purple Heart. Belonged to several yachting clubs, was chairman of the Olympic Yachting Committee, captain and managed the US 1972 Olympic yachting team, and won gold in the 1948 Olympics, sailing as crew to his son. What an amazing Oxford person. Cool says, what is not usually mentioned is that he was sentenced to prison in the Second World War for his part in what Cool describes as an orgy. After the assistant district attorney, Lawrence McKenna, had described the five defendants as moral lepers, part of a degenerate clique. Some degenerate, says Cool. Five years later, Smart, the decorated war veteran, won gold at the Olympics at the age of 56. The wholesome lives of other Oxford Olympians of the post-war era are well known. Again, I don't want to dwell on 1948 or 1952, uh, but I do want to mention, just in a second or so, somebody from 1956. If I could do it quickly enough, I'd mention it in 0.1 of a second, because this is the Oxford runner Derek Johnson, who in Melbourne in 1956 came second in the 800 metres by 0.1 second. Uh, I can tell you how that feels because he wrote about it uh, on the road to Rome 
1960. Uh, Derek Johnson says, An Olympic Games is a fixed and immutable occasion. It is a sentence as well as an inspiration. We're inspired by the incentive, the challenge and the meaning, but we're at the same time sentenced to produce the sum total of our talent, application, character and luck on one specified and remorselessly approaching day. I have seen men at the starting line of an Olympic final limp and pale with a fear and apprehension I have never seen elsewhere. The Olympic champion is one who has learnt not only to live with such things and to master them, but to bend them to his purpose. I entered the final of the Olympic 800 metres in Melbourne knowing that I had a very fair chance of winning an Olympic gold medal. I failed by one-tenth of a second, about a foot in actual distance. For 80 yards of the final straight, I led Tom Courtney, the American winner, by the same amount. But he does go on to say that Tom Courtney was an Olympic champion in the finest sense of the word. He had gathered his deepest resources at a time when many a man would have seeded the race and had hurled his massive frame past me in the last few strides. I had failed and failed to achieve the ambition which had meant so much to me. It was a bitter disappointment, and in some ways it still is, but it was a worthwhile disappointment. And were I to be given the chance again only to face the same outcome, I should have no hesitation in seizing it gratefully. For I believe it is important to take whatever talent we have and to use it to the best of our ability. Like Browning's grammarian who, aiming at a million, misses a unit, it is perhaps better to aim at the highest and fail by a fraction than never to aim at all. Time doesn't permit more than mentioning some of the names you will know in the 60s, Bill Bradley, Senator, gold medal winner in basketball. Uh, David Hemery in 1968, won gold and silver and bronze in 72. The Chavasses were trumped in the twin stakes by Mike and Mark Evans, Oxford Canadian gold in the rowing eights in 1984. I want to mention Bonnie St. John. Uh, she was a Paralympic skier in the 1984 Winter Olympics in Innsbruck. She's the first of five women I'd like to mention now. This is Bonnie. She came to Oxford because of the Rhodes Scholarships. Rhodes, as you know, set up his scheme with a focus on manly outdoor sports. But he's come to provide Oxford with some wonderful Paralympic sportswomen. Bonnie won two bronze medals at the 1984 Winter Paralympics in the slalom and the grand slalom and the overall silver for the fastest skier. At the age of five, she'd had a leg amputated above the knee because of a condition she'd had since birth. She's well known in the USA as the first African-American Olympic or Paralympic medal winner in skiing. She was part of the official uh, opening ceremonies for the 2002 Games in Salt Lake City. And she had a tough life. She said that it was tough at Oxford. It was tough because Oxford wouldn't let her do her M lit. Uh, she had to forego her sport and other extracurricular activities to focus on taking a master's. 
but she had a tough life as, in her own words, a poor little crippled black girl that the San Diego school district wanted to send to a special school. You have to understand, she said, that as a child, I had never enough money to do anything. Our family sometimes had to eat canned soups and powdered milk for a few days until mom got her next paycheck. I went through Harvard in three years instead of four because I was afraid we'd run out of money. Even when I made it to the Paralympics, I wore other people's cast-off ski clothes and mismatched gloves that I had gotten out of the lost and found at ski areas. In 1996, Annette Salmine of St. John's, who'd won gold uh, in Atlanta in the 4x200 relay, uh, was studying for a doctorate in biochemistry. You'll see that she still holds some of the medals if you look at the Oxford University Swimming Club website, uh, some of the records here. And she now has combined her sport and her science as a leading figure in the US anti-doping agency. In uh, the Winter Olympics in Vancouver in 2010, a recent Oxford graduate, Joy Topman, was one of the match officials, a referee in ice hockey. The examples of Oxford women now are legion. Jen Howitt, a Rhodes Scholar, uh, and now, having got married with the name Jen Browning, won a wheelchair basketball gold in Athens in 2004 for the USA, and she's the coach for the Great Britain basketball, wheelchair basketball in the 2012 Paralympics. And if we look forward to London 2012, Mara Yamauchi has a real chance of improving on her sixth place in the marathon. She is not only an Oxford alumna, she was born in Oxford. I've written about her uh, in um, the website that's being referred to. There's a Z to A of Oxford sport. And I won't repeat it all, but you can see that she values greatly the opportunities that Oxford gave her. I found that under her maiden name, Mara Myers, She's one of three people chosen in 1994 to 95 academic year to write in the official university report of the year of their extracurricular activities, one of the three students chosen. And she wrote this. I was elected captain of the University Women's Cross Country Club, Hillary 93. My job was to pick and motivate the team. We had a successful year. I was quite pleased with my personal result, 11th out of over 150. In the Trinity term, I switched to the track. I suppose the highlights were winning both the 800 and 1500 for Oxford and Cambridge against Penn and Cornell. Actually, I'd hardly done any running before I came to Oxford. I gave up swimming at 14 and played club hockey for a few years. Oxford gave me the opportunity to try something new. So somebody we now know of uh, as a great marathon runner was converted to running while at Oxford. And she pays tribute to the tradition of Oxford running, which meant so much to her. I want to conclude this section by referring to Stephanie Cook to complete the Cook's tour before we try and take stock. But before I do, given that sequence of, of women, I just want to mention two men in the post-war era. In 1948, one of the people 
who got an Olympic medal is a person called Mickey Wolford. He had won blues in rugby, hockey and cricket in the 1930s. Because he played those three sports for Oxford, he played for the university more than 150 times, thought to be a record. In November 1935, this is to illustrate what it is to be an all-rounder in sport. In 1935, you may know that Oxford played the All Blacks, and Prince Obolensky scored a great try. And that led to him being selected uh, for England and scoring two great tries in that game against New Zealand. But who passed Obolensky? Mickey Wolford. He was the centre inside Obolensky. Howard Marshall says this, What a try it was, out to Wolford, who ran beautifully before he passed to Obolensky. E.W. Swanton, in his report, was even more evocative. Oxford, with three quarters of the game gone, were only a point behind. Mickey Wolford makes a sudden break from his own half and feeds the blonde figure outside. At Mickey Wolford's uh, Thanksgiving service at Sherborne, the school where he taught for many, many decades and coached, Simon Wilkinson says that this reference by Swanton to Mickey Wolford was typical. Inventive, imaginative, seeing the opening and generously making way for others. I love that phrase about Wolford as the centre to Obolensky. Inventive, imaginative, seeing the opening and generously making way for others. He won his silver medal in the 1948 London Olympics for Great Britain hockey. And Wilkinson says, after the match, the Olympic final, he was seen furtively leaving the ground clutching a cricket bag. He had to. He was playing cricket for Somerset the next day. <laughs> he was a good enough cricketer to have hit Keith Miller, the great Australian fast bowler, for four through the covers, and to be given the compliment by Miller of being hit in the chest by a bouncer next ball in retaliation. For the first five minutes, Mickey Wolford said, he thought he was dead. He fought in the war in Normandy as a signals officer at the crossing of the Rhine and ended the war as a major. Then he won silver in London. Then he taught and coached at Sherborne, coaching, amongst others, David Shepherd, uh, Bishop David Shepherd, the great cricketer. In London 2012, Lawrence Okoye would like to be throwing the discus. He could now be studying law at St. Peter's but he's decided to switch to athletics and to take a year off. In rugby, he was called an English Lomu when he helped Whitgift School win the Daily Mail Under-18 Cup last year. So I want to emphasise that it is not the case that Oxford sport is on the slide. There are still great prospects, but it is obviously true that in many ways the panel that you're going to hear from later this afternoon are examples of the imaginative ways in which Oxford uh, people are helping the Olympics in a new era. It's become a major media operation. It's become a major commercial operation. And naturally, it won't only be on the track where Oxford makes an impact. But to sum up this era up until the present day, I'd like to refer to Stephanie Cook, the epitome of the all-rounder, as the modern pentathlete, the first woman to win the modern pentathlon in Sydney 2000. You probably know that she was a rower at Cambridge and then in studying medicine came on to Oxford and became also a shooter, fencer, 
swimmer, horse rider, runner, and gold medal winner. You may also know that she was not in first place in the final run, coming up to the final run. And she had to overtake another Oxford Olympian who won the silver medal, Emily de Real, uh, an American. So from Theodore Cook to Stephanie Cook, from 1908 uh, on to 2000 and beyond, 2012, there have been some extraordinary Olympians. And in the final section of what I want to say, I want to reflect on the meaning of it all and to return, in a sense, to first principles, whether it's the first Olympic principles or first World War principles, in order to understand the prospect ahead of us of this third London Games. So from Cook to Cook, the journey should take us back to the starting point of reflecting on the meaning of sport, of university, of life and death. The Oxford people making a difference in the coming Olympics, whether directing the games commercially for LOCOG or reporting as accomplished journalists, or hosting as Prime Minister and depending on the London Mayor result, possibly as London Mayor, and certainly through a previous Prime Minister, Tony Blair, playing a significant part in winning the bid, all of these people are in the spirit of Sir Theodore Cook and Stephanie Cook. And I think those words about Mickey Wolf would apply to them, and certainly to the distinguished Olympians I'm avoiding mentioning, because at least one of them is in the room, uh, Sir Roger Bannister through to Matthew Pinsent. Inventive, imaginative, seeing the opening, generously making way for others. So back to that music that was playing when you came in. The composer was a sculler and a rower. His name was Frederick Septimus Kelly. He won gold in the 1908 Olympics, rowing in the eight. And a few weeks later, a book came out. That's very modern, isn't it, bringing a book out straight away. But this book had gone to press before. It was called The Complete Oarsman. By, uh, RC, or edited by R.C. Lehman, uh, and as a chapter on sculling by the composer of that music, Frederick Kelly. Before I get to his chapter, I just want to read something about the point of sport, something about rowing from the editor. Outside the universities, this is in 1908, it cannot be said that rowing is a popular sport in the sense in which cricket and football are popular. Rowing has never, to my knowledge, been responsible for, for such extras of the halfpenny evening papers as are sold by thousands in London during the cricket and football seasons. Every schoolboy plays cricket and football. Only a few schools have in their neighbourhood rivers on which rowing is possible. Moreover, the science of oarsmanship is a highly technical business, and the learning of it bristles with difficulties. It involves a complicated series of movements which have to be performed not merely with accuracy, but with an accuracy based upon that of others, and depending for its due effect upon the harmony that is attained at every recurring stroke with the rest of the men who compose a crew. In other words, a person who rows in a crew cannot hope to gain applause by individualising himself. The oarsman who does his work in a crew must be content 
to subordinate his individuality, to lose even his name, and to be converted into a number. And while working his utmost to look for fame, not so much as any striking eminence of his own, as to the reflected glory that comes to him as one member of a successful crew. So that is what oarsmanship is about. And Frederick Kelly was a great oarsman and probably an even greater sculler. His diaries tell the story of his life. Born in Australia, uh, he went to Eton and then on to Balliol as a musical scholar. He was known as Sepp, uh, from his middle name, or Clegg. He took up sculling at Oxford and won the Diamond Challenge Skulls at Henley in 1902, got his blue in the eight in 1903, lost the boat race, won the skulls again in 1903, but in 1904, he lost a heat in the diamonds, in the sculling at uh, Henley. Skulls, a man from Toronto, suddenly put on a spurt and went past Kelly. At the grandstand, Kelly was two lengths behind and just came to a stop. He was totally exhausted. He had to be lifted out of the water. Our friend Sir Theodore Cook wrote that Kelly had not trained for long enough that summer. Commentators are often prone to say that people who don't win uh, a medal, a cup, haven't trained enough. And this rankled with Kelly. He was also, even in a Guardian leader last year, accused of uh, not doing well in finals because he spent too much time rowing and composing music. Uh, but his father died in 1901, his mother died in 1902, uh, which may have affected his results in 1903. But anyway, he left Oxford, went on to Frankfurt to study music. And there he read in the Times, five years later, 1908, that his old rival, that annoying man Scholes, was going to compete in the Olympics in London, in Henley. So he decided to come back and take revenge. Didn't quite work out because Kelly wasn't selected for the Skulls and Skulls got beaten in the first heat. But he did row for the Leander crew. Britain had two crews, one from Cambridge uh, and one from Leander. By the way, in 1912, Britain had two crews, one from Leander and one from New College, Oxford. And the Leander crew were almost all from Oxford. So of the 16 rowers and the two coxes, the 18 people in the final, 17 were from Oxford. <laughs> Pub quiz question that you can use. So Kelly came back from that sad experience at Henley. He came back and he got his gold medal in the rowing. And the final was his last race. Then the book came out with his chapter on sculling, which was his last word on rowing. The section on sculling was described by the editor as by the master of the art, this Frederick Kelly. And I would say the lessons apply to life, and I won't read all of them, but I just want to show that he was trying to answer his critics. If you don't know the whole story, you don't appreciate uh, the beauty of some of the things that, that he was saying. There is much difference, he says, of opinion as to the length of time that should be spent in preparation for a race after a considerable period of physical inactivity. 
is not a question to which there can be a definite answer. But two and a half months should be ample practice for a person of average strength and wind who hasn't put on much extra weight when out of training. So he's saying that it wasn't the fault of training. And then he says, it's not by sculling your hardest that you go fastest. But it's undoubtedly a fact that if in a full course all your strength is expended in the desire to accomplish the half course in the fastest possible time, you'll accomplish the remaining half at such a lamentably slow pace that the fast time for the first half and the slow time for the second half, when added together, will be considerably in excess of the time you could have taken. And my point here is that in complaining about critics complaining about him, not training, and in talking about the need to be even-paced, what he says of the water has been said by famous Oxonian Olympic athletes about running and about other sports. He says that you must race with the head, not to let the excitement get the better of your judgment. And he says that sometimes there will come a point where you just come to a stop. An eight can almost always get over the finishing post, but as a sculler, you may approach an extreme of exhaustion. So again, he's responding to his critics. And he says that if your opponent spurts, uh, you must be careful because they may be trying to encourage you to go too fast and to break. So in sculling, as in every other form of sport or game, every man will have what are known as off days in which his skill seems unaccountably to desert him. And these are his last words on rowing or sculling. During such periods, he should beware of overhaste in seeking for external causes. Rather beautiful, self-critical, but also quite assertive. And then there's a lot of technical information on how to scull. Now, that may be, it was his, it may be the last word on sculling. But what did he do next? He focused on music. His diary entry uh, on October the 18th, 1910, says uh, about reviews of a professional performance he gave on the piano. On the whole, the reviews were fairly just, but one critic said a thing which I foresee will be repeated wherever it is known that I was a sculler. The critic said, my playing was perhaps a little too muscular for interpretation of Chopin. <laughs> then came the war. Kelly sailed to the Dardanelles with the Hood Battalion, becoming friendly with the Cambridge poet Rupert Brooke, who died in April 1915. Kelly buried him on the Greek island of Skyros. Kelly was then wounded at Gallipoli. While recuperating, Kelly, our gold medalist, wrote the elegy for string orchestra in memory of Brooke. Kelly returned to Gallipoli in July and was among the last soldiers to be evacuated off the Gallipoli Peninsula. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for conspicuous gallantry. The Hood Battalion went back to France and at the end of the last great battle of the Somme, Kelly was killed on the 13th of November while leading an attack against a machine gun emplacement. So I'd like to end by playing Kelly's elegy once again. It begins in a very soft way. And it does that because it's evoking the wind whistling through the Greek grove. Some would say the Olympian grove 
of Rupert Brooke's grave. And I'll read out, by way of conclusion, a lovely letter to the Guardian last November from Colin Clifford when an armistice day, the BBC on, on Radio 3 had played this music immediately after the silence. I was delighted by your editorial about this Anglo-Australian composer's elegy. At the time of Brooke's death, Kelly wrote, Brooke is one of those like Keats, Shelley and Schubert who are not suffered to deliver their full message. The same applies even more to Frederick Kelly himself. Yet the music he did write deserves much greater recognition. He was a remarkable man, not just the best oarsman of his generation and a talented, if unfulfilled, composer, but adored by his comrades in the Royal Naval Division. Universally known as Clegg, he kept everyone cheerful in, on his troop ship in the days before the Gallipoli landings, hammering out popular music hall songs and sea shanties on the ship's piano. And in France the following year, he persuaded the high command to allow him to conduct the divisional band in a performance of Tchaikovsky's 1812 to the accompaniment of a real artillery barrage. Like so many Oxford Olympians, therefore, Kelly's message was full enough. He won gold. He achieved great things in sport, in the arts, in life, and in death. From Theodore Cook to Stephanie Cook, from those who fought in the First World War, like Frederick Kelly, to those who fought in the Second, like Mickey Walford, the energy of the soul that is the essence of a great university or a great life well-led is being inventive, imaginative, seeing the opening, and generously making way for others. Thank you. <laughs>